Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a listen. Our guest today is head coach of the LMU Lions, Aaron Mansfield. On this episode, Aaron discusses his maturation process as a coach from his beginnings at UCSB to Santa Clara and now LMU. He also talks about wanting to become the first non-Power 5 school to win a ring, the difference between the art and the science of being a good leader, and his stance on how important the mental side of the game really is. Check it out. Hold up a second, son, because we almost there. You could be a black man and lose all your soul. You could be white and blue, but don't prep the road. See, my shit is uniform. And we're rolling. Look at that. Tech savvy, right, baby. Man. Let's go. Man, it's great. Well, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah. Having coaches on is huge. This is all Jackson, by the way. He's leading <laughs> the coaches' march. You're still the player, you got man. got the player's march. It's important. Good balance. Right. He's the talent right now. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so, yeah, Aaron, what have you been up to lately with uh, the Lions at LMU? I think the same thing as, you know, all 350 programs in the country. Just uh, I've, I've learned a lot about Zoom and, uh, and Skype and how to figure out ways to communicate using technology. Um, you know, we went through spurts where we were meeting as a team, you know, once or twice a week, we did some individual stuff. Uh, I definitely didn't want to go overboard with it. So we were trying to keep things fresh, do certain educational stuff, but also come on and play games and uh, just, I guess, try to stay connected. Uh, some of our players had a harder time than others just I guess compartmentalizing and processing just the current situation with COVID and then obviously the incident with George Floyd and you know there's a lots of heavy emotions with all that's going on in the world and um, luckily we have a, a very close-knit group of girls that trust each other and kind of confide in one another so we've had zooms that have lasted 15 minutes we've had zooms that have lasted about two hours and just kind of depends on what the topic is but it's really, since we can't do much with volleyball, it's just been about staying connected as a team. Yeah, I think you're right. That's what every school in the country is trying yeah. to do right now. We're not, we're not doing anything different, I don't think, but yeah. So forget the present right now, but we want to talk about you and how you got started in volleyball. Uh, you're one of six, correct? One of five boys. One of five boys, the youngest of five, right? Youngest of five, yeah. So when did you start playing volleyball? in the in beautiful northern california good question wow um well i guess I'll, I'll i guess i'll start with my dad my dad was a a really really good athlete in high school um held like the state pole vault record in oregon played baseball basketball football the whole deal and then at 19 and en enlisted in the marine corps fought in vietnam and uh and then when he came back he had five boys and he introduced all of us to every single sport in the book and each one of my brothers kind of gravitated to, to different sports. Um, but my oldest, my older brother, Jay, who coaches at UW and coached at Stanford for about 15 years, um, he got introduced to volleyball. I think he was probably 10, 10 years old or so. Uh, we have a house in, in North Lake Tahoe, and the AVP used to put on a really small draw tournament in Kings Beach. There's three courts kind of right on the lake. And uh, that was the first time that he just, he caught the bug. He, he was all about it. 
And, um, and then when he got to high school, there was no high school team. So him and his buddies put a petition together and started uh, boys volleyball at a public high school in Northern California. And so at the time I was like eight or nine years old, I went to all their practices and all I did was just shag balls. Um, and I would go to all the tournaments and games and uh, I played a bunch of different sports growing up, baseball, basketball, football, golf, soccer, tennis, uh, the whole deal. And the first opportunity for me to play organized volleyball was in junior high. And my brother Jay was our coach. And, um, and then in eighth grade, the junior Olympics was in San Jose, which was like 10 minutes from my house. And my brother was like, guys, we could go play in the junior Olympics. And it's not anything you have to qualify for at that time. You just sign an application, you pay a fee and you're in. But like, we were like, oh my gosh, the junior Olympics, wow. this is like super elite. So that was the first opportunity to, uh, to play some club. Um, I played club in Hawaii, my sophomore, junior year in high school, uh, just stuck with volleyball. Um, my freshman year in high school, I played football my senior year and then, uh, went on to play at UC Santa Barbara, uh, graduated in 2005. And then I trained a little bit with USA Volleyball in Anaheim. Hold, uh, hold on, hold on. Let's yeah. go back a little bit. Okay. You're from Northern California. Yes, sir. And you just said you played two years of club in Hawaii. Yes, sir. How did you manage that? It's like a 15 year old's dream. Uh, yeah. Uh, so my 14th year, I played club in Northern California, and we played at the Junior Olympics in Denver that year, a club from Hawaii. And uh, I think we played them in the match to get into the medal round. And after the match, we just became friends with this Hawaii team. And um, fast forward three months later, I'm on vacation in Hawaii in Waikiki playing beach volleyball with my brother. And I run into a bunch of the guys from the team that we played at JOs. And they were like, hey, why don't you come play open gym at Kamehameha? And it's with the team that we just played like three months earlier and just come ball, just come play. And uh, so I played with them. And then after the practice, they were like, hey, like you should think about playing club here next year. And I was like, so naive. I'm like, oh, I, I probably should ask my parents. And so I'll, I'll never forget. This is like before cell phones or anything. Like my mom is on a landline talking to the coach of the Hawaii team when I flew back to Northern California, basically saying like, they're getting to know each other. And my mom hung up the phone and she was like, yeah, you can fly out there and stay with them and, and play club. So the coach of the team at the time was the janitor at Kamehameha. And so I would fly over there for spring break, winter break and my summers. And we would practice like three times a day because we had access to this gym. And uh, the team was really good. It was Hawaii Volleyball Academy. Um, a lot of the best players from the island were playing on this team. Uh, we took, we got the silver medal my 16th year. Uh, we had guys going to play at SC, Penn State, Hawaii. Um, it's a really, really good team. So, uh, yeah, I did that for two years. Got coached by Randy Nako, who was in the USA Pipeline for no a little way. bit. You had Nako? Had Nako. I love that guy. He was our data volley guy when I was on junior team when I was like 15. Nice. Yeah, he, was, he was my club coach. It was, it was a really interesting way to look at the game. We had uh, like, we would pass free balls to left front um, and run kind of a left side offense. We had all these different play sets. Um, when a free ball would come over, you would just tell the setter what you wanted to hit while the ball was coming over. So we would run different X plays. Um, we had no numbered sets. They were all colors based on flags that were in different parts of the net. I mean, it was, 
it was a very different way at 15 years old to look at the game. I wouldn't say that I apply a lot of the stuff that I learned then now, but what it did, it just opened my eyes to just playing the game a, a really, uh, a really different way. So I'm very grateful for the time that I got to spend over there, the relationships that I made with, uh, you know, I keep in touch with a lot of the guys I played club with um, and just had really good coaching. So yeah, I played club in Hawaii for two years. It was wild. Yeah. What were some, Going back to that time, maybe you come back from your last club season. What were some things you just took away other than good friends and good coaching? Um, yeah, you know, I, the biggest thing for me was, you know, I, I still am undersized. I haven't hit my growth spurt yet. I'm, I'm 5'10". Um, but at the time, I was probably 5'7", 5'8", and I was hitting. Um, and I didn't know that uh, you could use the block to your advantage. I would always try to kind of avoid the block and roll shot and all these things and we worked so much on trying to find the edge of the block and uh there wasn't this um I guess demeaning feeling with the team when you would get blocked uh people were almost encouraging you to go after the block and we were a very undersized uh team so that was a big thing for me was just learning that the block was your friend and that's something that the coach would say all the time um and then also just different ways to do things we had a really small setter that didn't block in the front row he just floated um, so he was just there to cover tips. Um, Rover defense. We, yeah. The other thing is, uh, I'm pretty sure USA Volleyball changed the rule that you couldn't toss the ball and let it drop when you were serving because of us. Anytime we were losing, our coach would make us go back, toss the ball as high as we could, let it drop, have it bounce like four or five times, grab it, go back to the serve side. Because back then, you were allowed one toss as long as you let it drop. And so it was all these, like, that's what I mean. It was all these uh, small things to, like, control tempo of the game, um, how to score points by using the block, different ways, different formations to pass from, to run an offense from. Yeah, it was just a, it was a very unique, uh, unique experience for me. How good was your guys' setter at 15, where you can just start audibling left and right on this poor kid? He was a, he was a stud, Pono no Eva. Uh, he, uh, you have to be so good to just, like, listen and know exactly where yeah, everything's yeah. happening. Yeah, it was um, – he was really good. And he was the coach's son, so he got introduced to volleyball really early on, too, and his ability to process the game was uh, – yeah, was elite at that point. Did you feel like that was an advantage for you, like having been around the game so much with Jay being your older brother? And then obviously you were overloaded with it when you moved to Hawaii. Like, was that one, was it like, was it a lot to take on or was it just fun when you're just like, really, you play like all the time now, finally? No, it's a good question. It was really fun. I never felt overwhelmed. Um, for whatever reason, I was able to process the information pretty well. Um, I don't know if it was necessary. I think it was, I think ultimately is how it was taught to me. I remember we had a packet of, it was probably a 10 page packet of all the play sets and all the colors. It was color coded. Um, so there was a visual aspect to it. Um, practice was not just about playing volleyball. It was about learning and teaching the systems. Um, so that Hawaii experience was really good. My brother had a huge influence on me as a player growing up because he was really big on fundamentals and he was a very technical coach. And uh, he was one of the first coaches that I was around that would do things like uh, write out a practice plan, which seems really, you know, like everybody does it now. 20, 25 years ago, it, you know, a lot of coaches were just showing up like, hey, this is just kind of what we're gonna do. But, you know, my, my brother is, is 
obviously I'm biased, but he's a really good coach for a lot of reasons, but he's always been thoughtful. And he was thoughtful before a lot of coaches were thoughtful and intentional about what you were going to work on and get better at at that practice. So I was in this environment with my brother in high school where workouts were intentional, practice was intentional, and then playing club in Hawaii, just almost playing this different style of volleyball. Um, it really helped mold my game. And I think how I just saw the game at that point. I was going to say, as a coach now, philosophically, which way do you feel like you lean more towards the fundamentalist way or like uh, the laissez-faire? Like, do you know what? You just got to figure it out. You got to make some mistakes and, you know, you deal with it. Yeah. Uh, well, Jackson's coached with me, so I'd love for him to chime in. But I, I think uh, I think it depends on what level you're coaching. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the head coach at LMU and, uh, you know, girls come in with with a pretty high level of skill uh but they're also need to adapt to a faster uh speed of offense and defense and serving and passing and so um if i if i find or if i see that someone's fundamental uh if there's a deficiency there that's not allowing them to be successful then i'll spend more time on the fundamental um if it's more of a decision making thing that they need to get better at or a reading element that they need to get better at, then I'm going to put them in a lot of random reading situations to where they can practice those things. And so to me, it's, it's not a broad brush. It's really, what does this player need in order to get better? And some players need a little bit more technical work and some players need more work, just playing the game of volleyball. And it really depends on what environment they're in, in high school and club. You know, there's a lot of clubs out there that do a lot of really, really different things. Some of them do a ton of block training. They come in very technically sound, but they can't read the game well at all. And then other clubs are playing a lot of six-on-six -six volleyball. There's not a lot of fundamentals being taught because they only practice two or three days a week. Their reading ability is really good, but the way that they maybe move um, is not as efficient as it could be. So it depends on what motor patterns they have developed when they come to LMU. And then I just kind of take a step back and evaluate them and say, hey, what what do we, what do, where do we want to spend our time and prioritize our time to make this kid better? And that's going to make the biggest jump. All right. Going back to high school. Yeah. So, so I knew you played football. Yeah. We talked about it one time. Maybe it was a one minute conversation. Um, I heard a dirty rumor that you played football to get stronger for volleyball. Oh, Is that true? So true. All 145 pounds of me. No, I, uh, I committed to play volleyball my uh, my junior year in high school. I committed to UCSB, and I had never lifted weights before, and a bunch of my buddies were on the football team and lifting weights during that summer. So I started lifting with the football team. I'd played Pop Warner football before, and uh, one of the times after we were done lifting, I went out and was throwing the ball with my buddies, and the head coach was like, why don't you come out and play? And so I played, and uh, I played quarterback that year, and – I think maybe we won three games. Um, <laughs> it sounds maybe more glorious than it was. Yeah, that's uh, pretty good. Uh, we, I mean, I, my high school won three games in my four years there. So if you can win three games in a year, that's that's solid in my book. Yeah, it uh, it didn't feel rad at the time. I'll tell you, um, I got my I got my clock cleaned so many times as a quarterback. I got hit so hard one time that snot came out of my nose onto my face mask. Mm, beautiful. Do you remember that happening or did somebody tell I, you that happened? This was like pre-concussion protocol for sure. I remember my head ringing in the locker room at halftime in a lot of the games. 
Uh, but did it prepare me to play volleyball? Probably not. But I told myself <laughs> that I wanted to get stronger and, and uh, go through a weightlifting regiment. And uh, I did that. It was, it was a fun experience my senior year. And, uh, and then I went off to Santa Barbara to play. Defending would be a joke, though, after just taking hits from a shitty old line. It's like the volleyball. I wasn't, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't scared in volleyball. I can, I can tell you that. I was ready to get in there. So what was a bigger accomplishment? Uh, silver at JOs your 16th year or playing a golf tournament when you're four years old and carrying uh, your own bag? Definitely, definitely the golf tournament. I shot, I shot 127 in nine holes. I couldn't even, I couldn't even count to 127. This poor, this poor old woman had to follow me around and put tally marks every time I would hit the ball like 20 yards and go and walk to it. My mom chopped down a three wood, a seven iron and a putter in half and put grips on it and made me my own bag. Cause this was like before there was clubs for kids. And, uh, yeah, what an experience. I was three and a half years old playing in a golf tournament. Again, that's my, that's my dad being like, just go play every sport that you can as early as you can. I feel like that's the Marine in him. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. There's a lot of Marine in my dad. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Relentless pursuit. Oh, yeah. What's like one – what's one big thing that you've taken away from him as – just as a coach? Just one thing where you're like – or one moment in time athletically that he provided you with that you're like, this is going to stick with me forever. I'm never going to let my kids go through this or I'm going to make all my kids go through this or. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it's the, the memory that I have in my mind is very, very vivid. And uh, <laughs> my, uh, my dad worked a sales job for gosh, probably 25, 30 years. Um, was up at four in the morning, back at six in the evening. He just grinded and uh, to provide for our family. And it wore on him. You know, he wasn't the happiest guy when he would come home from work. And I remember one time, I don't know how old I was. It was really early, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. But he looked at me almost with like desperation. And he was like, it, it was almost out of the blue. I don't think there was in like an impetus to the conversation. And he just said, find something you love to do and make it work. And I'll never forget those words ever because, and I, and I know my dad really well and I can see his face when he was saying it, but he was saying it because he never really found it. I don't think. And he wanted so bad for his kids to find it. And I think that's one of the reasons, and Maddie can probably speak to this. You know, my, my mom and dad go to, or have been so supportive of my brother and I, um in in coaching and i think a big reason is because they see how much joy it brings him and i and that brings joy to my dad that his sons have found something that they love to do and we've made it work i mean i was a volunteer assistant doing data volley and i coached men's volleyball i worked my way up through women's volleyball and you know my ultimate goal was to be a head coach and um you know, I know that things like that bring him a lot of joy because, you know, that was really important for him, for us to find something that we love doing and we both found it. That's really awesome, cool. Man. That's really but, cool. D or Dave Hunt brought up a really good point and I would love to hear your take on it. And both of you were fortunate enough to come into like pretty, really valuable programs for both men's and women's volleyball. 
and you got to follow suit after two incredible coaches, obviously. It, when you came in, did one, were, did you feel ready? Like, were you confident enough in your abilities? And two, did you come in, like, guns blazing, like, this is my program now. I'm putting my stamp down. Like, this, <laughs> this is Manfield show. Yeah. Or were you, like, you know, I mean, just walk me through that because that's – it's a lot, for sure. That's a good question. Uh, was I ready? You know, um, I knew I was ready to take on the challenge. And I was ready to take on the challenge because um, I was fortunate enough to be at Santa Clara, where for six seasons, where the head coach gave me a lot of space and a lot of autonomy uh, to be in charge of recruiting and change some systems offensively and defensively. And I implemented a lot of stuff that didn't work. <laughs> and I implemented some stuff that did from the men's game. And so if I didn't have that opportunity, uh, I probably wouldn't felt as ready to, to take on LMU because I, I was pretty convicted about some things that we were doing that was working and that I knew could work at LMU just from a volleyball standpoint. Right. Um, I think that from a, taking on a challenge and – leading with like care, love, compassion, humility. Uh, I was in that mind space. And in my mind, therefore, I was ready to, to take on something new, knowing that I was going to fail along the way and that it wasn't going to be perfect. But I also was really a lot more clear on who I wanted to be as a head coach when I took on LMU than I was, you know, two years maybe before that. So it's not like I, you know, LMU opened up and I was like, hey, I'm ready to be head coach everything's going to go well I just knew that I I was equipped to have the self-efficacy to be like I can I can handle what's going to be thrown at me yeah now two months after I got the job we had uh half of our starters transfer and we had the six players that were committed in high school verbally all decommit so a senior four juniors and a sophomore all decommitted within the first two months that I got the job so I remember sitting in my office and uh, thinking or realizing that we had no recruits uh, committed in high school and that half of our starters transferred. And so um, there was no, uh, if I were to come in, my point is if I were to come in with a plan guns blazing of like, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. It would have never worked period, but especially because there's so many moving parts that take place within the first you know, two to six months that I came in of like, I'm going to try to get to know everybody that I can evaluate the situation, see where we're at recruiting wise. What do we need? Where are we at with training? Where are we have with team culture. Where do I need to spend my time? And obviously, you know, Tom Black was there before me, an extremely good and methodical trainer. So the team that I took over was looking at the right things. They were moving effectively and efficiently they were playing the game in a, in a style of volleyball that I was very much in tune with from a coaching standpoint, um, where I had to spend a lot of time was building a team culture. So when I started practice, everybody knew what slow to fast meant and the fundamentals of volleyball and serving tough and, and why analytics are important, you know, uh, but what was missing was half the team leaving and a bunch of girls looking around like, what is this going to be like? 
And so for me, it was, it was spending a ton of time with them, which I got to do because all of our indoor girls played beach volleyball, which was the biggest blessing that I had my first four to five months there yeah. is I wasn't just allowed to be around them for four hours a week or whatever the, you know, the spring rule was at that time for indoor. We were on the beach together every single day. So whether they were getting better at beach volleyball, they were because John Mayer does a great job with our team. But for me, it was just, I was around them every day so they could get to know me. And so our first year, you know, I had, I had five or six months to get to know my team before our first season. And that's what, what was important to me is let's figure out who we want to be as a team. Uh, I want you guys to be comfortable with me and get to know who I am so I can uh, create a, an environment of psychological safety where you can feel like you can be yourself and speak your mind. That was a really important thing to me at the beginning. It still is. Um, but yeah, it wasn't anything. I mean, when I took the job, I was like, man, LMU was really good last year. If they return their whole team, like this team could win conference. Oh, and so-and-so is coming in and she's coming in and she's committed. And then, like I said, two months after I get the job, I was like, all those girls I just mentioned are all gone. Was that like an ego slash confidence killer? It's like, I walk in and then it's like, now you want to, you know what I mean? It's like, now you want to decommit just because Tom left? Like, what what do you think? You know what I mean? I mean, to be honest with you, yeah, my initial thought was, was, uh, this is on, you know, just the, the self-loathing, like, this is unfair. For sure. You know? <laughs> For sure. Right? But, you know, so it, but it quickly turned into, I just wish I could coach them. And I, I wish these girls were, were coming because they're good volleyball. But I didn't know them as people. But I played against them at Santa Clara. The girls were at LMU. Yeah. I knew the girls coming in because I'm, you know, was a part of the recruiting process. So in my mind, I just built up this picture in my mind of like, man, this team's going to be loaded with, with, some, with some good stuff. And then, yeah, that was my initial reaction. And then after calming down and thinking logically and talking to my mentors, you know, the message was like, hey, now you get to build this thing how you want to build it. And yeah, you get to get yeah. the kids that you want, to, you want to get. And, you know, as you can imagine, trying to get commitments from uncommitted seniors to join your program that are going to have to compete for you next year, there wasn't a whole lot out there, but we were able to get, you know, two kids that have played a lot for us in the last three years that were uncommitted seniors that you know worked out for us but spent a lot of time recruiting for the last three years and it's starting to come to fruition I mean we our 2019 and 2020 class were top 30 ranked classes in the country recruiting and we've got two Gatorade State Players of the Year on our roster and we have a we feel like we have a solid young team we've put a lot of time into it Um, but at the beginning it wasn't about that it was about just assessing the situation and figuring out, I mean, first year is just, how are we going to put six people on the court? We had, we had 10 healthy bottles bodies the whole year. It's literally so it was like uphill from there though. Uphill. <laughs> Pretty chill. I got yeah, a lot of reps that year. For sure. I mean, but at the same time, like we beat Duke at Duke, we beat North Carolina at North That's Carolina. That's right. Surviving in advance, baby. We lost, a, yeah, we lost to Oregon in five. Right there. Surviving yeah. in advance. Vince Valvano. It's all we, that's all it was. Um, so yeah, the first year was just about trying to keep the ship afloat, but also just establishing something different than what was there before, not in a good or bad way, but you know, each, each season has been a different challenge. That was the first year. The second year, you know, we had some talent. We, we had a nice year. We upset number one BYU and made the tournament and beat Duke in the first round and then lost to Stanford 
who was an absolute buzzsaw that whole year. Um, you know, but you know, my second year making the tournament into the second round, like that's, I would, I, I, I'll tell you, I, it would have been hard for me to imagine that sitting in my office two months after I got the job with half my starters bailing and, Man. you know, kids decommitting. We so might I'm proud to of, talk proud of we're from Duke off the ledge right now. Cause right now you're just crushing him. He's two and oh, two and oh, baby. Two and oh as a head coach. <laughs> um, so you mentioned, and I know this personally about you that you're pretty thoughtful. And if you have something that you're thinking a lot about, you do call your mentors. Who are those people? Who are some of those people that you're going to call if you have to make a decision or you just want to bounce some ideas off of? I mean, first person comes to mind is my brother, Jay, for sure. I mean, him and I talk every, every couple of days. Um, you know, I, I appreciate and love my brother for so many reasons, but you know, one of them is we do see things, you know, a little bit differently and, but I, in a really good way, I don't want to talk to, you know, everybody who's like-minded with me. And he's, he's just had a really different coaching experience than I have in the sense of, I don't think he's, I think he's not made the tournament one year and he's been coaching for over 20 years. You know, you're coaching at Stanford where you have for 15 years where you have the opportunity to win a national championship or go to the final four practically every year. And you go to Illinois and then you're at UW, you know, he's, he's, he's just been around a, a bunch of elite teams, which has a lot of value. Um, I've coached teams that have went, you know, three and 24 and taken over programs that are depleted. And so I just have a different, I've had a different experience in road than he has. Again, not one is, is better than the other, but you know, getting his take on things, he has a different perspective than I have. And um, so learning from him is huge. Rick McLaughlin's another one that's, that's big. Um, yeah, he was the one who introduced me to gold medal squared, you know, when I was 21 years old and he still is, uh, yeah, a really important mentor to me. John Wallace at Santa Clara, who I worked for for six years, uh, really close friend of mine, great guy, uh, has a really, uh, unique and rich perspective on on life so those three guys you know come to mind Keno Jose Gondaro was my coach at UCSB he's the head coach of Miami now um yeah those are those are volleyball people I have some some other just people in my inner circle that I like to go to that yeah. are involved with volleyball too but Jackson, it's good to have good people around you yeah absolutely Jackson and I have talked about this and I don't know if you can attest to this but it seems like you're kind of following suit is um if you if you have a family tree like a learning tree and for you it's been gold medal squared for the most part like would you ever leave that like at any point in your coaching career so far did you ever think like oh maybe I'll diverge and like go to somebody that's not necessarily like a gold or isn't really associated with gold medal squared or have you always thought about like that learning tree, man? Like that's huge for me. That's, that's always been a backbone for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I understand your question and what I, I guess if you're going to use the analogy of a tree, like I, I don't want to be in a tree with just, you know, gold medal squared quote unquote people yeah. or just art of coaching quote unquote people. And, you know, for me, um, I have a lot of appreciation for gold medal squared in the sense of it uh, for a lot of reasons, but it really changed the way that I thought about, coaching when I started to get into coaching. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Brent Crouch's uh, kind of different ways that people come up with their values mm -hmm. and um, just the method of tenacity or authority and 
or the method of science. And where gold medal squared came in, I think made a huge impact on the volleyball community. It was the first time that it took kind of like a scientific approach to coaching. Okay. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to argue motor learning science um, and, and research. And uh, you know, there's other things about gold medal squared that I, you know, that are still hard for me to maybe be super convicted about like all their keys, but principles are principles. You can't argue like the ball knows angles. Like that, that's, yeah. that's a, that's a very real thing for sure. Um, <laughs> Where, where I have my apprehensions is, you know, are the five keys of passing, those are not studied keys. Uh, you know, like, I don't, I don't, you know, if we watch the best passers in the world, for instance, I don't, I don't know they're doing all five of those things perfectly, is, is my point. And, yeah. and so, you know, there's a, there's a science to coaching and there's an art to coaching. And so I believe that I want to be somewhere on that spectrum at different times. I think there's times to dive into analytics and dive into the science of making sure that your methods have retention and specificity. And then there's, we're also not robots. <laughs> so there's the art to coaching yeah. and, and where the art comes in, if you think about it, and, and literally there's a company, obviously art of coaching. If you listen to guys like, you know, John Dunning and Russ Rose and Terry Laskevich talk on those things, they're not talking about science. They're talking about this is what I did and this is why I was successful. So they're getting their values from the method of authority and the method of tenacity because this is what successful people have done. This is what I've done and it's worked. And I think there's value to that too because if you, in my mind, a barometer of what makes people great, whether it's musicians or athletes or coaches is longevity. Like, are you relevant and are you successful for a long period of time? Or did you just have this moment in time where you had some success? And you're talking about Russ Rose, Terry Laskevich, John Dunning. I don't necessarily, I'm not going to agree with everything that they talk about, but I don't agree with everything anybody talks about. But there's some value. I mean, it, it wasn't a coincidence that what they were doing was working for literally through decades. For sure. So there's that. So, so my point is like, I want my tree to be influenced by people that are more on the art side and more on the, this is what I've done and this is why it's worked. Yeah. And maybe it's not going to be best for you, but there's some things in there I'm going to pick out. I also want to more often than not be, have my decisions being made by some sort of objective data. Now that doesn't mean analytics. It could be, uh, uh, growth mindset research. Like that's, that's psychology that's rooted in science. Yeah. And where to go from here. Um, so we skipped over UCSB a little bit. And other than you, you mentioned, uh, Rick is one of your mentors. Uh, why UCSB? And what were some, what were some personal growths you took from freshman year to senior year? I mean, college is a huge time in all of our lives, but how did you grow as a person? How did you grow as a volleyball athlete slash wanting to get into coaching and was Kenny your coach yeah KP was my coach yeah Ken Preston so uh Ken Preston was my coach Jose Gondara like I said Keno um who's the head coach at Miami was the assistant coach and he was a really big part of our gym and our program um and and still is a mentor to me uh yeah why Santa Barbara you know obviously the location I was getting recruited by a couple other schools uh, my best friend from high school, Keith Bosom, went to UCSB. He was two years ahead of me, so going on a recruiting trip there and just seeing how he lived and the way he spoke about the program was uh, was pretty special. I was really into beach volleyball, too, so I wanted to be able to play beach in the summers, which I was able to do. Um, 
yeah, what was unique about it or, or what I learned about myself, I, I guess, uh, I, I guess I never viewed myself as a, I would say I never viewed myself as a leader, but I was voted captain my freshman year. And so I was a four-year team captain. And so I, I learned really early on that I was doing something that was uh, positively affecting people around me. And uh, I think it was probably a combination of being really competitive. I always had kind of like uh, small man syndrome. So I was kind of a feisty competitor. And, um, you know, I had a bunch of people tell me I was too small to play college volleyball and all those things. So I was extremely competitive, but I also worked really hard and um, was also trying to bring people together outside of the court. And, um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I think by my senior year, uh, you know, we had two pretty good years. My freshman year, we, we lost the match uh, in the MPSF finals. Um, senior year, we lost in the MPSF semis. So I was on some decent teams. Uh, but um, yeah, by the end of it, I, I, I think just looking back, I, I wish I would have spent a little bit more time um, in class and, um, <laughs> and uh, getting more out of my education. I was a cultural anthropology major um and just because I wanted to play volleyball but uh you know I wish I would have majored in something like psychology or something that you know is a little bit more of interest uh to me now um but uh yeah I, I still wanted to play after college and so I got a, a chance to do some stuff with USA a little bit and then I played on the AVP for about three years and qualified for a handful of tournaments and then in 2010 the AVP folded and started coaching full-time so when you were in college who was the first player in the MPSF to just give you the business like oh this, wow uh, this guy was serving you off the court or hit, hitting crazy stuff at you you couldn't dig Freddie Winters yeah the uh the the six seven heavy arm Canadian uh that played at Pep he uh yeah he was gnarly he he hit it he hit serves that um yeah that were hard to see from me um and that was uh at the time, Brazil had just introduced some back row stuff, some big stuff, and, and Pep was starting to throw that in their offense. And, uh, yeah, he was a scary man. Marv told me he's, like, the best athlete that's ever walked through that gym. He'd never hit a baseball. And, like, you yeah. know how the baseball diamond's, like, overlooking the ocean? And, like, the pool's a little bit lower. He said he dinged a homer his first swing, one hopped it into the pool. I heard he was a good athlete. What I know is that he was a very good volleyball player and hit the ball really hard to where it was hard for me to see it sometimes. <laughs> was he the best player you played against in college? Uh, he was one of them. I mean, I'm, I'm on the pep train here. Rooney, his senior year, was there wasn't a, there wasn't a guy that was – yeah, I mean, he hit – I want to say he hit like 429 on the yeah, season. I think outside. he hit like 432 his God. senior year. Yeah, he was uh yeah, he he was unstoppable. He was probably he yeah, he was probably the best. Would you say that up I mean Santa Barbara's a party school, we all know that, but outside of that, would you say the Santa Barbara lifestyle is tough to keep athletes engaged just cuz they're they're surfing, there's all this different stuff you can get into. Not that other schools don't have it, but is that a challenge with teams that you've seen, whether you heard about it or you saw it when you were a player? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, look like, yeah, one of the, you know, one of the things that I look back on too, of, 
you know, I wish I would have spent more time and taking my, you know, putting some more effort into academics is, you know, there, there's a social aspect to every college, you know, there's, it's no, it's no, uh, you know, secret that, you know, people go out and party and do all these things. I, I will say it happens to be, you know, more prevalent at Santa Barbara, um, because of the way that Isla Vista is set up and, uh, the way that the, you know, the college town is and, and where people live. Um, it's a constant distraction if, but it's just like if it, it, with anything else, it's a distraction if you make it a distraction. I think the challenge is it's just really hard not to. Yeah. Um, and not just the party aspect, it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful university. It's really easy to just go down to the beach right from where you live and, and maybe not do your homework or, you know, not take care of yourself or, or whatever it is. But yeah, I, I, just my experience being there, we had a lot of players on our team that had a really, really hard time balancing their social life, athletics, and academics. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think it's a yeah. function of the environment. I think it's also a function of the culture. Like I, when I went there, like it was, there was never talk of like, hey, we're here to win a national championship. Like I'd never heard that ever. Partly because we never had. We had got close in 88 and 96 were the two years that the team went to the final four. But there wasn't like a legacy of this program is great. You know, stepping into a Pepperdine, a, a UCLA, a USD, you know, th there wasn't any of that. So my point is, I think if there was something like that, then it might have put some guys in line of like, hey, we, you know, we're playing for something bigger than ourselves. There's, there's Olympians before us and national champions before us. That wasn't the, unfortunately, that wasn't the environment at Santa Barbara. Yeah, it's like putting on the Laker jersey, like there's a little – there's some yeah, different it, weight there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean I don't, obviously I, I love Santa Barbara. It was just different. It wasn't, yeah. you know, there wasn't that, uh, yeah, that legacy to it. How do you do it at LMU? Cause it's not, it, I mean, it's kind of, it's not, it's similar in the, it's similar in the sense of like no national championships. Like it's not like yeah. there's all these all Americans coming out or anything like that. So what, yeah, how do you mo how do you motivate these kids in in seriousness? Because it's yeah, easy no. when you're BYU. It's like, hey, you come here, we're for sure going to the tournament. We're probably going to win the W. You know what I mean? Like, there's things on your resume to help you out. And yeah. for you, I guess, like, how do you sell your program, and then how do you keep selling it? Uh, I don't think that you can sell something that you don't genuinely and authentically believe in, first of all, because I think at some, at some point people see through it. And so for us, uh, you know, we can say we want to be the first non-football or non-Power 5 school to win a national championship. You know, we can say that, and we do say that. We talk about that. It, it's not something that we sit in a room and are like, what are our goals this year? Because teams that do that, I think, come up with the same goals every year. We want to win conference. You know, we want it's it's some sort of result oriented kind of goal. Now, I'm not saying goal setting is is bad or anything like that. It's just we choose to do things differently. I think for us uh, and reading the book Chop Wood Carry Water and working with Lucas Jaden, who's our sports site guy, has challenged me to kind of change my thinking on this about three years ago. And one of the things he talks about is comparison being a, uh, the thief of all joy. And so, to me, what that means is. Uh, yeah, we're trying to win a conference championship and be the first, you know, non-football school to, uh, to win a national championship. But it's just about how good we can get. And uh, that's a lot easier to convince your players than you'd probably think. Because what happens or what my experience is, what happens is 
if you can convince them and teach them and educate them that comparing themselves to other people or other programs is not necessarily going to help them, that it's just about seeing how good they can get every single day and ident identifying specifically what they need to get better at, what happens is you start to build like a, a collective competitive advantage because you're just focused on yourself and you're just focused on your team. Because we talk about things all the time. Let's just see how good we can get today. Let's just see what we can accomplish this year. And it's not like a, you know, whatever happens, happens. Like, let's just see. But it's this like exciting curiosity that we have of, man, if we do put in the work and we're committed to just modest improvement consistently done every single day, that it's going to start adding up. And the difference is this. Three years ago, I had players look sideways and be like, oh, that player is just okay. Like, I don't know if we're going to win this match. We've got some players in our gym now where kids are looking sideways where it's like, man, that girl's kind of gnarly. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like, honestly, and I mean, it's not our whole team or anything like that, but like there's belief has got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. Otherwise it's yeah. not going to be sustainable. So I didn't like you talked about guns blazing. I didn't go into LMU my first year being like, it's time to win a national championship this year. I went in like, what's, what's going on here? Like what yeah. we're assess the situation and I don't even, like, honestly, I'll, I don't even know what's, I didn't even know what's possible at LMU my first year or my second year because I, I was still evaluating. I was still trying to figure out who's on our team, who's coming in. Now I can honestly tell you, yeah, I mean, if we stay healthy and I don't mess it up, I think we're going to be really, really competitive in the next couple of years because we have, we have good volleyball players that want to get better. So I know that was kind of like a, a long-winded, you know, how do you, how do you do it? I just, I don't think that you spend a lot of time hey, we're going to win a national championship. I think what it comes down to is on a Wednesday in the middle of season, you looking your team in the eye of them buying into, I'm here to get a little bit better today. Yeah. It's a really, everyone talks about that and we talk about it too. It's a really hard thing to do. But in my mind, the teams that I've either been on or coached that are playing the best volleyball at the end of the year, which we were two years ago when we made the tournament, are committed to that. For sure. Especially in the dog days. Yeah. Yeah. Just a real quick shout out to Lucas again. I, Aaron, I loved coaching for you and for Ben and Natalie, but meeting Lucas was one of the highlights of my LMU coaching career. Like that guy yeah. is awesome. And for the listeners, he's a what he's a consultant and his book is Chop Wood Carry Water. I yeah. highly so recommend it. His name's Lucas Jaden. He uh he works for a company called Train to Be Clutch. Uh he works with Joshua Metcalf, who was yeah. an author for Chop Wood Carry Water. Um Lucas works with uh, a couple major league baseball teams, a um, couple college football teams. We're the only non, we're the only non football and baseball team that he works with. We got in really early with him and developed a really close relationship with him, but he is a, above all, he's just a really, really good dude. He's smart and all those things, but he's also very relatable. He's not, he doesn't come in and give us PowerPoint presentations on how the brain works. He, he does things that helps our team connect with one another and, develop some some mental skills to generate things like calmness and confidence and and things like that so a lot of tangible stuff that we take away from him yeah I think he's similar to you in the sense of it's like okay where are we right now like I'm working with the this team these young women right now they don't care about a major league baseball player or anything like that yeah. but who are we and what are we trying to get better at yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, and with Matt's question too, 
I'm not really concerned about what my players want. Meaning if you ask them what they want, they're all going to give the same, I want to win or I want to, I want playing time. What I'm, what I'm interested in is what are you willing to sacrifice and what are you willing com to commit to every single day in order to make that happen? Like that's the stuff that's important because if you just ask them what they want, it, it's, it's, it's going to be lip service in, in my mind. So we can talk about being the first, you know, non-football program to win a national championship or win a conference championship, which we haven't done in, you know, seven years. That's great. What now? Like, what are we willing to commit to? And so that's the conversation. That's where the conversation has shifted to really the last year um, and really being specific with what that means and, and not just saying that that's what we want, but you know, at what level are we willing to commit to what's, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Where the first year it's just like, Hey, let's try to put, try to put six <laughs> players on the court. Cause it's a bit of a struggle. Let's figure out what these people could hit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we literally designed an offense based on, I didn't yeah. come in being like, Hey, this is the, this is what our offense is going to be. I literally went through certain various hitting lines with different sets, different tempos. And we figured out a system where we played extremely fast to the pins with a slower set in the middle where we were able to, you know, run our middle set from a pass that's off the net to, to keep stress on left front and right front to help out. Otherwise our middle was going to be one-on-one -on -one hitting essentially a two ball. And we had the setting to do it. Otherwise it wouldn't have worked. Obviously you only can play as fast as your setter can set. Yeah. Setters were good. Setters were good. Did <laughs> well, good Dude, I want to meet this guy. Who, Lucas? Yeah. yeah. Can help you out with that. Oh. <laughs> You're in, Maddie. So then, like, uh, I think one thing that really frustrates me is people think, like, you're going to have some kind of magic. And I fell victim to it, obviously, like, as an 18-year-old walking in, or 17-year-old walking into Lars office and walking into practice. So I was like, all right, man make me an Olympian today. Today's, you know what I mean? Yeah. How do you, how do you break through that barrier a little, not faster, but how do you break through that barrier? And how, it's, it's like a, it's, how do you break through that barrier one? And is it just an everlasting process? Yeah. So what I, what I hear in your question is, um, First off, delayed gratification versus instant gratification. Yeah. So the reason why I think that that's important is uh, instant gratification is such a uh, consistent part of these players' lives, or really everyone's lives, based on their phones. Uh, if they want something, they get it fast, and they don't have to necessarily work very hard at it. Amazon, like all these things. You just you get what you want pretty fast these days. If you want to get better at passing – um, we're going to need to teach you delayed gratification. So meaning we need to teach you patience. We need to teach you self-compassion. Uh, we need to get you bought into the process. And so, you know, how you do that is I, I think you start with educating them or convincing them that what they're trying to learn takes a long time and that there are no quick hacks. And that's another thing with our, I think our society is, you know, Hey, we want to, get skinny fast or get strong fast. And, and we want it to happen now, now, now. And again, with, with things that are sustainable, which is what we're looking for, we're looking for learning and teaching principles and motivation that's sustainable. 
it doesn't happen overnight and it takes a really long time. So as you can imagine, yeah, our freshmen have a really hard time with that. They were the best player on their club team or high school team. Uh, they're used to being able to hit low seam and get away with it. And they learn really quickly that that is not going to be a successful tactic or strategy. And they're going to need to change if they want to be successful. So there's always bumps in the road with it. But at the end of the day, it takes a lot of conversation of challenging them to reframe or change their mindset of how they acquire skill and uh, how long it takes to get better at something. And it sounds really simple, but it takes a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversation and takes a lot of film sessions. Um, you know, Savannah Slattery, who's an outside for us for the last four years, you know, I would have Sav talk to our, our freshman outside when, last year when she was a senior and she would tell stories about, hey, like I wasn't able to do this my sophomore and my, my freshman year. It took me two years. So them hearing from their peers, the process that they went through to learn how to do the things that they do is a, is a good learning tool as well. But, you know, that's, a, that's the same thing with like, I want to make sure that I don't have a fear-based culture because being motivated by fear in my mind is not sustainable. It's okay to have a little bit of fear sometimes for sure. Yeah. Hey, this, this person's going to beat me out. Hey, I don't want to lose to this team. You know, th there's a little bit that's for sure beneficial. But if you have a culture motivated by fear, how are you ever going to connect with anybody that you're around? Because you're just going to be scared to death. Yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible. So, impossible. so that leads in, that perfectly leads into my next question. And I text John Mayer last night to say, hey, do you have any questions for Aaron? Uh -huh. And and I agree with him since I was around you. You're one of the best people I've ever been around about building relationships. When did that become a priority to you? Hmm. Uh, when I went to, when I started coaching, honestly, women's volleyball, what my first women's volleyball experience was Santa Clara. And, um, it was the first time where I've, I found athletes almost seeking a relationship with their coach. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in men's volleyball. It absolutely does. I coached at Santa Barbara and I became, you know, close with a couple of guys, but the, it was just different. And, um, I'd say that when I, when I, took over the assistant coaching position at Santa Clara, the, the relationships between the players and the coaches was very strained. And it was not about, you know, I was brought in to bring in new systems and this and that. I couldn't do any of that stuff until I developed some sort of level of trust with my players. I can't just take, come in, like Matt said, guns blazing, like this is what we're going to do. They're going to be like, who is this guy and why are we doing it? So the, the thing for me has been, the most important job that I have as a coach is to build trust. And it's a really hard thing to do, but really to me, what it comes down to it come down to four things is care. Do they know that you care about them as a person? So it's the whole idea of they don't care how much you know about until they know how much you care. So it, it starts there. Then the second part is credibility. Do you have credibility? Are you studied in what you're saying? Have you watched film as a coach? Have you studied analytics? Have you studied biomechanic efficiency? Do you have a level of credibility? And then the third one is reliability. Like when the going gets tough, do you show up? So I got to make sure if we're losing a match or I'm grumpy one day or whatever, that I'm showing up and giving each player what they need in order to get better. And then the last thing is just being authentic. You know, I can't come in and try to be Tom Black. I can't try to be Marv Dunphy. Uh, you know, two coaches that, that I respect. I have to be authentically me and my team needs to see that. 
So my team needs to see me say, hey, I, I got that wrong. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to make it better. And so if you really think about it, you know, Matt, why do you trust Marv? Do you know he cares about you? Yeah, man, that guy's like my second dad. That's my guy. Absolutely. What about, his, is he credible? Yeah, yeah, he's credible. He's all right. Yeah, eight, eight, eight Olympics, is he reliable? Oh, man, he's the most, tra- yeah. Oh, yeah, Mr. Consistency. And then is he authentic? He's Marv, right? So it's like, you know, that's just an example of, you know, in my, so my point is like, I always use those four things as making sure that the relationships I have with, it's not just my players, my coaches too, but making sure that they know I care about them. They know that I'm investing time into studying the game, studying them, giving them what they need. So I'm credible, making sure I show up in tough times and then making sure I'm just, I'm being me and I'm comfortable with, with that and showing them that. And if you, again, if you think about it, think about someone that maybe you don't trust and it's, I guarantee you probably one of those things is not intact. Like they're not super reliable or, or you don't even know if they care about you. You know what I mean? So for me, that's been a really, it's been a really good way to frame, um, just a frame of reference of, of really a concert. I have it in my whiteboard and I see it every single day. I have a lot of things on there, but that's one of the things is just making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm staying in tune with those things because that's ultimately what matters to me is just the relationship piece. It's like, it's incredibly evident as a player too, when a coach just touching on reliability alone and as somebody that's been playing for a long time and played for a lot of different coaches now in all these different countries, you can blatantly tell if somebody's reliable, obviously, if they show up on time and they're willing to put in a little bit extra before or after. And a huge gauge for me is timeouts and your demeanor during a timeout, right? So, like, you give up a string of points and you've been calm, cool, collected, and all of a sudden you're playing for fifth or twelfth in, like, the point standings and yeah. you start blowing up for no reason, then I'm like, you've just lost your, – your trust is out the window now, right? For sure. So, you know, and those are just two really, really small – they're details, but they add up. And for sure, as a player, you know. You know. Yeah, and that's – the <laughs> players are smart, man. I mean, we all yeah. were players – we all were players before, and something I remind myself all the time is they are constantly, constantly looking, listening, analyzing, overanalyzing. I mean, everything that you do body language-wise, nonverbal – your tone, it all matters. And so that's why it takes a lot of men- mental energy as a coach to be switched on. Like anytime I'm around my girls, I'm always, I always try to be what I say switched on. And I don't mean I'm trying to be someone I'm not. I'm just really hyper aware of like, they care about me and they care about what I think about them. Like that's our, re- that's what our relationship has got to. For sure. Because of the time that I put in, like, I know that they genuinely care about me, but they also care about what I think good or bad, you know, to a fault sometimes for sure. But that's so precious to me that I want to make sure that I'm putting the time into the care, the credibility, the reliability, the authentic piece to make sure that that relationship maintains. Because when I first started this, it was really easy for me to care about people or them because that's very much in me as a person. That was, that was easy. The reliability part was fairly easy for me too, because I'm used to grinding. I'm used to showing up. I'm used to being pretty even keel with, with things where I felt like I needed to make sure when I first started coaching girls volleyball or women's volleyball, 
is the credibility piece. Like, am I teaching the stuff that's going to make us more successful? Yeah. Set speed, swing blocking, middle, middle. How tough should we be serving? What's our air percentage? What should that be? You know, that's where I felt like I needed to gain the trust. It was harder for me to gain the trust with female volleyball players because I didn't feel credible. I probably was more than I give myself credit for, but I, I really didn't feel like it. I was like, I need to really die. And I still feel like that. I'm not saying that I don't, but I really, it's one of the big things for me is I need to make sure that I'm constantly studying our game and the trends and international volleyball and what that looks like. Um, and then it just takes time to be authentically vulnerable because it's hard to do with a group that you don't know. So for me at LMU, one of the first things I did was I was like, I'm just going to be me. <laughs> and not if they like it, great. If they don't, I care about what they think. But I was very confident and, and secure with who I was. And I knew that if I would show them my authenticity and that I cared about them and, and things that I valued, um, I was hoping that it would rub off in a positive way. Has it become easier now? Obviously, it's been a couple of years. But now that you guys have these Zoom calls, right, in these times where you have to be more vulnerable, has it become more apparent to you of the, who the kids and who your staff and maybe you are in that circle of like, oh, like they're very willing to just tell us who they are and how they feel? Yeah, I mean, Zoom or no Zoom, you know, and I'm sure Jackson can speak to this too. You know, everyone knows each other pretty well. And the kids that speak up in the Zoom are usually the kids that would speak up more if we were in person. Yeah. It's just, it's a little easier to hide in Zoom. <laughs> Um, just because, you know, you don't, you don't see all the nonverbal cues. I mean, you can see their face, but you know, there's no, there's not a whole lot of body language. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, I, I think no matter if you're on a computer, if you're in person, if you're comfortable with speaking your mind and you feel safe, you're going to do that. You know, it, it just tends to be the younger players on our team, the freshmen, and some of the sophomores that are still figuring out, like, am I safe here? Am I going to get judged if I say this? And what they're learning quickly, even though it takes time, is that our group is a very accepting group, and we listen to each other and, and all those things. Obviously, it's not perfect, but there's a reason why we've had some really long Zooms. It's, it's me talking, like, 5% of the time, and it's our group talking. I ask a lot of questions, as Jackson knows, to our team. So, um, you know, I'm a very curious person. So it's it's them it's really me guiding the conversation but it's them having it nice uh question from a very special guest jason mansfield oh boy uh what have you learned about training from your first year being a head coach versus now so that's a three-year difference Ooh. what have i learned about training yeah um it still starts with assessing. And so when I got the job in my first year, it was about establishing a style of volleyball that we wanted to play offensively and defensively and making sure that we spent almost equal time in each skill, making sure that we understood what our serving strategies were, uh, fundamentals of passing, offensive speed and tactics, defensive placement, things like that. To, to get some sort of representation of what I envisioned LMU volleyball to look like based on what we had. How it's changed in the third year is we now have numbers. And what that means for us after doing some studies analytically is we found that the three things that influenced wins more than anything 
last year or last season was in-system efficiency, opponent hitting percentage, and opponent serve-receive. And so we take that data and now we spend more time making sure in-system, okay, so we look at in-system. When we won matches, we hit a certain number. When we lost matches, we hit a certain number. And the gap between those numbers was really, really big. So it becomes a really important uh, identity to your team. So we took that, that information, objective information, which is why the science to coaching is important. And now the art part comes in is like, okay, well, what methods are we going to use to get better and more consistent in system attacking? Is it because we're too high air? Is it because we're too low kill? Is it because when the pass gets, you know, a two pass and our, and our speed to the outside and consistency is not where it needs to be. Do our setters need to rep it out? Do our outsides need to learn more about shot selection? Um, so I'd say, you know, the training, the third year has just become a lot more specific uh, based on what the numbers and analytics are telling us about what influences wins and losses more than others. So we've, we've kind of prioritized it based on the numbers. Floor defense is like the sixth thing. We've been either last or ninth in conference in, in digs per set. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean we're poor defensively. It means we're obviously not doing something very well, whether it's system-wise or whether it's skill-wise, but it's also – you know, we could dig 70 balls in a match and lose, and we can dig 35 balls in a match and win. So it's just not as important statistically. That doesn't mean we don't spend time on it. We just don't spend as much time on something that is more impactful on wins and losses, if that makes sense. So our, our training is just more specific now. It's less broad. For sure. And I'm sure in three more years or whatever it is, it's going to be something a little bit different. For sure. And, and if it's the same, then we're not <laughs> – we're not teaching it well enough, you know, like if in-system efficiency is one of the top three things for the, for three years, then I really need to take a step back and be like, what, what, what's the deal here? What am I doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? What do we need to change? And, and things like that. And, and so we have two years of data. We didn't use data from the first year really, but those have been different each year, a little bit different, sure. but things like serving is important. We've been in top, top two or three in the conference and, and aces each year, which is aces is, is not everything, but, you know, opponent passing percentage, we've been in top two or three in conference each year. So we're doing some things well that matter. Um, but we just want to keep hammering those things home. I feel this is obviously, I don't know you nearly as well as Jackson, but how much emphasis do you put on the value of like kids and their intangibles versus their fundamental skill. Cause the three things you obviously mentioned and like how you can gauge your success, how to better your success in winning are three things that you can control in practice versus like we were talking to Dave Hunt and we were saying like, and Courtney Thompson, it was like the example is would, would you rather have a kid pretty mediocre at volleyball that has all the intangibles in the world or would you rather have a kid that has all the talent in the world zero intangibles <laughs> there's his answer yeah so there yeah so absolutely <laughs> not you take no, you take I, the I medium think, kid right i think it's a good question 100 percent. you know i mean just based on how you frame the question i take that i, I think um i think that what has changed in coaching probably in the last five or 10 years is what we view as skills. And a lot of it is Carol Dweck's work with, with growth mindset stuff. So 
it's really hard. You can do it. It's really hard to teach things like empathy and grit. And, yeah, and I know sure. that there's this, there's this push of like, and, and I do believe it, it, it is a skill people can learn just some easier than others, obviously. But the intangible stuff is kind of like, it's the magic dust. It's, it's the stuff that's there. And then if you really trust who you are as a coach and your ability to develop motor patterns and how people move and how people see the game and the visual representations that they have, uh, you're going to be able to take someone who's maybe mediocre at skill and build skill because that's how the brain works. And, and that's what you're going to be able to do. Now, obviously, some people it takes longer to do than others, but I'll take the intangible stuff all day long. Are those the types of kids that you're, that you're looking to recruit? Or obviously, you want both. You want talent yeah. and you want intangible, undoubtedly. But when you're out recruiting, are those actually the kids that you feel like you're more uh, attracted to? It's like their style of play and how they carry themselves and how they're perceived by their teammates versus I, execution? I, honestly, I wish my answer was yes. <laughs> like, like, seriously, if I'm being completely honest, I, you know, the, the volleyball coach in me sees someone jump high and hit hard. Yeah. And you tag them on your phone and that's what, that's what sticks out to you initially yeah. because the first thing that you, that's the only thing that you can see. That's the only data and stimulus that you're getting when you go to a convention center and watch a volleyball tournament. You don't, you don't get to get to know them. Right. So I guess, I guess for me, like what we do at volleyball tournaments is we, we mark kids that we feel like have a certain level of skill or athletic ability or physical ability. Then from there, I do what you're talking about. You, you more or less prioritize after conversations, Zoom sessions that you have with them. Does the, what intangibles does this player have? How do they fit in our culture? Do they have the wherewithal to have things like delayed gratification? Are they into getting better? Do they love playing volleyball? Are they gym rats? Yeah. All that stuff matters in the recruiting process, certainly. But to your point of like, initially, is that what you look for? I just don't think that you can necessarily see it all the time. You yeah, can see, yeah. I look for things like how they interact with their teammates and do they look their eye, you know, their coaches in the eye. Like you look for those things for sure. But I mean, let's be honest. You, you got a girl who's touching 10, six, just bouncing balls and you walk by her court. Like you're not thinking of like, I, Hey, I hope that kid's a nice kid. You're like, I'm going to talk to that kid on the phone because she just did something that's pretty special. Yeah. And then if she, you know, if she's a knucklehead or if she, you know, doesn't have like the personality that you feel like is going to fit your program. We've, we've passed on a couple kids that are, would be really good in our gym, no doubt about it. But after getting to know them, we were just like, this, this would, this would pose a lot of problems for our mm -hmm. team. Culture killers, man. Those, yeah. those people are infectious in all the wrong ways. And man, it's all it takes. I mean, what is it? One and a half knuckleheads to ruin a program. It's all it takes. I mean, yeah. The intangible stuff is really important. Um, it's something that you, you need to do your research on and spend time really getting to know them. I mean, think about it. When you talk to a recruit on the phone, you bring them on campus, they're always on their best behavior. Yeah, yeah, they're not actually every themselves. time at all. So that's why something that we do that I know other programs do, we're not the outlier here, but it is really important for recruits to spend time with our team yeah. because our team is very in tune with who we are now and what we value and a recruit spends time with them and then our players spend time with us as coaches and we're like what do you think are they gonna fit and we've gotten 
I, like I said, we've gotten a couple like, uh, not sure. I don't think that this is a good fit. And I'm telling you, a couple of these players have been, has, have been really good and have been interested in us. And it's just not worth it. And then conversely, there's times they come back. We're like, we love this girl. She, she fits in our team right now. Cool. That makes our job, you know, a lot easier. A lot easier. But it takes, again, it takes a certain level of trust that you have to have in your team of having them be really clear on what they're about and making sure that recruit is going to fit in them and you got to trust them, which we do. We trust our team a ton. Matt, do you have anything else? Uh, yeah, I have one more question. So do I. Go for it. Um, this is something that I've just been – I've thought about this probably since I was pretty young. But I've always really valued having one person on the court that maybe statistically isn't incredibly valuable. And they may seem like they don't bring a lot to the table, but they just hold it down for the court. You know, like that one, it's just that one guy. Do you feel the same way when you're coaching or do you do like straight cauldron where it's like, you got to have the best stats to play or is it's like, is, are you in the same boat where it's like you got to have that one kid that maybe they're not the greatest athlete or the most talented, but they just keep us afloat? Yeah, I love that. Um, I'll say that, you know, I know I've talked about some data and some stats and, you know, I use that inf- – all I do is I use that information to make some decisions. It's not all. I, I'm not – we don't run a cauldron. Um, you know, we do have a lot of numbers, but it's nothing like we use it to always determine playing time and and things like that. Um, at the end of the day, you're trying to put a product on the court that gives you the best chance or shot to win. And after you're around a team for a certain period of time, you start to see how certain people influence and affect other people. Now that could be a really positive in a positive way. And that can be in a really negative way. And so, uh, you know, we won't get into names, but two years ago, we had a player that uh, seemed to have a pretty negative effect on people around her. And, uh, and it, 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 she, it was just a really challenging situation. We were also in a, in, a, in a circumstance that we didn't really have anybody else to go to at the time. And so again, assessing the situation, what does our roster look like? What changes can we make? My team right now is really different. Meaning if we had that player that had a negative impact or negative influence for those around her, we have depth now to where someone could step in. And even though they weren't, wouldn't be maybe as talented, uh, they would have a more positive effect on the people around them. So it, it absolutely makes a difference. And I just think it takes a, it takes a coach that's very in tune with their team to know who that person is, if that person exists. Cause I will say this, I agree with what you're saying. I'm not sure that's always the case though. Yeah. I'm not sure there's always the case where like the third outside or the fourth middle or the backup opposite, or it, you know, should be on the court, even though their numbers aren't as good because they make those around them better. That's but, and I know that's not what you're saying, but I think that it's just, it just depends on the situation, but absolutely. If their numbers aren't as good, but they make, they, they just, they have that, you know, whatever that is, that intangible, uh, maybe it's bringing a sense of calmness to a team that's really hyper. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's a person that brings a bunch of hype to a team that's too calm. Like th- there's all these different things that you can do to influence and affect people around you. I think it's absolutely essential to make sure coaches don't overlook that, which I'm sure I have in the past for you know with, without a doubt. But it's important. That one random kid that wins every drill and you don't know how. They exist. <laughs>
like uh, Bruno was his name at BYU, the setter? Uh, uh, not – I don't think it was Bruno. Which one? It was in, I think, early 2000s or late 90s. I don't know. Anyways. The guy from Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yeah, I forget his name. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. But All right, last thing, Aaron. And, again, this is from assistant coach – or, yeah, Jason Mansfield. <laughs> Tell us the boxing glove story. <laughs> oh, man, he would. <clears throat> well, we had one pair of boxing gloves growing up. And he used to give me the left-handed one and he would take the right hand <laughs> and he just used my face as a punching bag. <laughs> I used to get so mad that I would try to start hitting him with my right hand that didn't have a glove on it and go to my mom and dad after he beat me up a little bit and complain to them. And they would just keep saying like, why do you keep doing it? But <laughs> Very little sympathy for me, I but yeah, I wouldn't have a lot of sympathy for that situation. Yeah, my brother, who's six years older than me, gave me yeah left-handed glove and gave me a nice little face whooping. <laughs> I'm glad I know that about I love, you I love now. Him for it. I love him for it. Right. Well, Aaron, I think we're good here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I think. Dude, thanks for coming on. That was yeah, awesome. seriously, this has been great, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, asking the questions. I didn't, I didn't, I haven't got a chance to listen uh, to the podcast yet, so I didn't know what I was uh, getting into. I had a little butterflies, which is a good thing, and um, hopefully, there's some stuff that uh, people I can listen to. Yeah. yeah, hopefully, in the future, we could have you on again and maybe talk some more. Uh, just culture things and things you're learning as time goes on, but we won't yeah. bug you for, we won't bug you for a few months. Any, honestly, anytime this was fun to do. It's something different, but Aaron, thanks again, man. Yeah. Thank you. For very sure. Much. Thanks for having me guys. I I'll definitely want to do it again. So if you guys uh, need a sub or fill in always down to talk a little shop.